I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. We've been teaching for the, a number of weeks a, a series that we've uh, entitled Reigning in Life. And we want to conclude that series this morning. We've been using as a text scripture Romans chapter 5 and verse 17. Paul is speaking by the Holy Ghost talking about the, uh, the work of two men. The work of Adam and what uh, that wrought into the earth. Talking about Adam's sin, his transgression in the uh, Garden of Eden. And then comparing or literally contrasting the work that was accomplished by Jesus in the fulfillment of the promise of his crucifixion, burial, and resurrection, and what that brought to us. Romans chapter 5, verse 17, it says, For if by one man, speaking of Adam, for if by one man's offense death reigned by one. Now, he's not talking about physical death. He's talking about spiritual death because Adam didn't die physically the day that he sinned, but he did die spiritually. God's instruction was not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the the, um, knowledge of good and evil. He said, for in the day thou eat thereof, thou shalt surely die. Well, Adam didn't die physically, so he couldn't be talking about physical death. But he did die spiritually. The light went out on him. His eyes were opened and he saw who he was apart from and without God. He became separated or estranged from God. So if, for if, by one man's offense, death, spiritual death, reigned by one or by the one action, by the one man. Much more, we've made this comment before, but I I have a hard time reading over it without saying it again. The Greek phrase much more really doesn't mean uh, well in the same way. Much more means that it's so far beyond that it really shouldn't be compared, but you need a comparison to see. That's what it means. It would be like comparing the the life of an ant to the life of a human being. Well, we could say they're both life. God created both and they're both life. But the life of the human being, the life of man is much more. We can use them for a comparison, but they're really not in the same class. That's what he's saying about this. Much more. Much more than Adam's transgression called spiritual death to reign. Much more they which receive. That word receive means to take hold of and to act on. They which receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Now notice the reigning is not in in the sweet by and by. It's not in heaven. The reigning is in life. So if we went no further, said nothing else about this, we could conclude without dispute, without fear of contradiction, that God intends for mankind to reign in this life. The Amplified says reign is a king, but you, you can very readily see that the word reign itself, the fact that the word reign is used, it brings the picture of a king, someone who is in charge. God expects his people to operate in authority. And that is the point. Just as spiritual death through Adam's transgression enabled spiritual death to take authority over you, over all mankind, much more in the same manner but way beyond Did the work of Jesus enable mankind, those who meet the criteria, those who take hold of and act on the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness? That's got to mean something more than just being saved, folks. Because how much of the church world do you know of that's reigning in life? There's got to be something more to it. No, it's a taking hold. It's an active understanding. It's the operation based on knowledge of who we are in Christ and what belongs to us. I believe it's a progression. I don't believe it's a one-time thing. I don't believe it's you get saved and all of a sudden, 
Okay, now we reign in life. No, I, I think it comes progressively as we grow in the knowledge of God's word and who Jesus is for or what he has done for us, who he is to us. Amen. But it's obvious that he intends that God intends for man to exercise authority in life so that he reigns as a king. He wants us to reign over circumstances, and he certainly wants us to reign over the one that that, uh, Jesus defeated, Satan, the one that Jesus defeated when he came to the earth and completed the plan of redemption. He wants you to reign. He doesn't want the devil to exercise authority over you in any manner whatsoever, in any aspect of life. Now, it'll be pretty easy for us to see where we need to work. All we need to do is look at our lives and say, well, all right, what part of life am I not reigning in? That's the place where we need more knowledge. That's the place where we need to start taking hold of what the Bible says belongs to us so that we can turn that around. But now I think there's, uh, uh, well, let me just be real honest with you. It's, re- it's real easy to talk about the things that Jesus has done for us, authority over sickness, authority over poverty, authority over anything and all the works of the devil. It's real easy to get people pumped up about that because there are a lot of pump-up scriptures. I mean, even I can get people shouting over certain things. The part that's not so easy is when you look at it in context. Because reigning in life does not just mean reigning over sickness, reigning over poverty, reigning over everything uh, that the devil does. Well, let me say it this way. I think this way will be a little bit more clear. I think a lot of times we read this much more They which receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall never have another problem through Christ Jesus. Much more, they which receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall get instant results through Christ Jesus. Now, folks, if the context or the the picture that is painting is reigning as a king in life, then let's think about a king reigning over his country. Does that king ever have any problems? Do those problems stop him from being king? What if he has a rebellion in his kingdom? What if it escalates to the point where there's a civil war that takes place in his country? Does it stop him from being king? What if the economy tanks in his country? Isn't he still king? What if there's an outbreak of plague or sickness that devastates Multitudes of people. Isn't he still king? Well, see, I think a lot of times what we do is we put our own interpretation on what the Bible is saying. We're right here in verse 17, back up to verse 1 of this chapter. We've looked at this before, but let's go a little bit further and see what it says. It says, therefore, being, literally the Greek says, having been justified or made righteous by faith. So he's talking to people that are saved, right? He's talking to people like you and me, born again, in their case, spirit-filled, just as many or most of us are as well. Therefore, having been justified by faith, having been made righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom, by Jesus, we also have access by faith into this grace. So he's saying, if you put this together with verse 17, he's saying very readily, you have already been made righteous. So you've taken hold of the gift of righteousness. And you also, by faith, have access into this grace, the abundance of grace that will enable you to reign in life. In other words, he's telling them, you've got all the tools you need for verse 17. 
You've got everything you need to reign in life. Because you've already been made righteous. And you have access into the abundance of grace by faith. Now, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. So there we go back to the knowledge of who we are and what Jesus has done for us. It's a growth process. Would it be nice if we just woke up one morning, we knew everything that the Bible says about who we are? Wouldn't it be great if after you, the morning after you got saved, you automatically knew, instantly knew who you were in Christ and everything that he's done for you and the authority that belongs to you? Doesn't work that way. It works. It comes through knowledge. The more we gain knowledge of who we are and what Jesus has done, the more we are able to access by faith those things that have already been done. But he's saying here in verse 1, he's saying you've got all the tools you need to reign in life. Now, folks, if that's true for them, it's true for you. See, sometimes we read these things and talk about these things and people think, oh, there's something must be wrong with me because I'm not reigning in life. Well, you may not be reigning in life, but that doesn't mean you don't have the potential for it. No, but Pastor Mike, I need you to just pray a special prayer for me because something must be missing. Well, no, there's nothing missing. You may need greater knowledge about certain things, but there's nothing missing. You've got all the tools that they had, which enabled them just like it enables you to reign in every area of life. If we would ever get to the place where we quit looking for God to do something more for us, and accept the fact that it's a matter of taking hold of what God has already done for us, that gets you a lot further spiritually. That brings you back into a place of authority that Jesus has purchased for you. That's true for, for where healing is concerned. It's true where prosperity is concerned. So many people are looking for God to do something. Oh, God, please do something. And he's looking back and say, I did everything you needed to for what you have. I've already done everything that's necessary. That's why the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 1 that you have been blessed. Not going to be, but you have already been blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. He's done everything he's ever going to do. Brother Hagin used to get people's attention this way. Just He'd say it this way for the for shock value, just to try to get their attention. And I saw people, there were times where I stepped in, I thought there was one guy that was going to hit him. Because he came to Brother Hagin to pray for him for healing. And Brother Hagin recognized, saw where he was. And he said, God's done everything he's ever going to do about your healing. Well, this guy got fighting mad. And then finally he spoke up and he said, you mean God's not going to heal me? And Brother Hagin said, I didn't say that. I said, he's already done everything he's going to do about your healing. See, this guy was looking for God to do something that hasn't yet been done. Brother Hagin had to turn him around, look him in the other direction and say, Jesus on the cross did everything that was necessary. Well, he wound up getting the guy healed. Took a little work. But all it took was the guy changing his focus. Instead of looking for something that hasn't yet been done to looking to something that had already been done. Well, this is saying they've got everything they need to reign in life, just like you do, just like I do. Therefore, having been justified by faith or having been made righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also... By Jesus as well. Jesus is the source of righteousness, and Jesus is also the source into this grace. Faith is the vehicle whereby we access this abundance of grace because Jesus has provided it for us. Now, what do we do with this grace? Notice this where it says, wherein we stand. Wherein we stand. Now, why does the Bible ever say you stand in something? 
The implication, anytime the Bible talks about being standing, it talks about being immovable. It talks about not being shaken. It talks about all the things being established and so forth. Different words, different terminology is used. But it's always the same picture. And that is, there is something, some force here in this earth that is always going to try to pull you off the place where you're standing. As kids, we used to um, grab hands and try to knock each other off balance. Well, that's the way it works with the devil. The devil's always trying to knock you off balance. And it's easy for him in most Christians' lives because they don't know what they're standing on. But the Bible says we stand in this grace by faith through Jesus. If you're not established, if you're not fixed in what the Bible says Jesus has already done for you, you're easy to knock over. You get anybody off balance, no matter how big they are, you get somebody off balance, they're easy to push over. That's what the devil's trying to do to you and me every day. So it says, wherein we stand. We stand in this abundance of grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And we stand in that. And then it notice, notice it goes further and says, because we stand in it, it says we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. How many of you get happy about the word? Oh, that's easy to do when you see the wonderful promises of God, isn't it? Oh, man, I just love to just just think about what the Bible says belongs to me. I love to dream in the Holy Spirit. I love to, to take the Word of God and see myself with everything that it says. It's easy to get happy about the things that, that the Bible says are yours. Right? Verse 3, and not only so. Not only do we rejoice in the things that the Bible says are ours, not only do we rejoice in that, but we also glory. This word glory is the same word rejoice in verse 3. And we also rejoice in tribulations. Tribulations means hard places. Test trials and adversities. How many of you guys really get happy about the hard places? Why do we rip that verse out? It's just as true as the preceding verse. Oh, let's talk about the standing in the abundance of grace. Okay, let's do that. In order to do that, you're going to have to get just as happy about the hard places or the test trials and afflictions that come against you in life so that you can use your faith to take what the Bible says is yours. Now, folks, don't get me wrong. I I know a lot of people have the wrong idea about how this is supposed to work. A lot of people think that the Bible says rejoice for everything. And everything, because God is behind it all and God's bringing trouble into your life, be happy about it. That's not what the Bible says. But the Bible does say you can rejoice in everything. I don't rejoice for trouble, but I've had to teach myself to rejoice in trouble. The reason I don't rejoice for trouble is because trouble doesn't come from God. And I'm not going to thank the devil for anything. But I can rejoice in trouble... Because of what the Bible says. Not only do we rejoice about the promises of God, but we also rejoice in tribulations, knowing that tribulation works patience. How many people get real happy about their patience being developed? I don't know too many people that put that first on their praise list. Oh, thank you, Father, for the opportunity, this hard place, for the opportunity in this hard place, not because you brought it, but in this hard place, I have a wonderful opportunity to develop patience. What a wonderful, wonderful thing. Now, most Christians I know are praying for the hard place to end just as soon as it it can. God, do something so I can get out of this hard place 
so that I won't ever need this thing called patience. Because if I'm going to reign in life, doesn't that mean get instant results? And if you get instant results, who needs patience? Now, whether we say that or not, I think a lot of us think it. We may not verbalize it, but I think most of us think reigning in life means everything works out to our convenience so that we don't really have trouble in life. Yet Paul said we should rejoice in the middle of the hard place because it develops our patience just as much as we rejoice in the promises that, that, uh, that we have authority over all the work of the devil and so forth. If you haven't figured it out yet this morning, I'm talking about reigning in patience. I'm not expecting a hoop and holler service. I know how this works. Nobody gets happy about that. But we're supposed to. Which means, if the Bible is true, it means that reigning in life has at least a part of it is dependent on being able to rejoice in trouble. Folks, anybody can get happy when things are going good. Anybody can be glad in God when everything is going your way. But that's not what a king does. A king holds his position, maintains his office, keeps doing what he's supposed to do, whether things look good or whether things look bad. Because he knows if I keep doing the right things or good things long enough, things will turn around. Circumstances will change. And a lot of times kings have to encourage the people. Sometimes in the greatest time of tragedy or or difficulty and things like that, real leaders step up and encourage the people, say, I know this is tough, this hurts all of us, but we'll get through this. Why? Because if they get down, everybody's going down the tubes. Right? That's part of our responsibility according to the authority that Jesus has given us. That's part of reigning in life. Part of reigning in life is being able to look at the problem and say, okay, nobody likes this, me included, but the Bible says that if we'll keep doing the right things long enough, we'll make it. Now, with that in mind, turn with me to a scripture we've been looking at for the last couple of weeks as well. Um, Back in Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus talked about the building of the church. Jesus asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? And they answer, well, some say you're Elijah. Some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. And he said, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, this is verse 16, and said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him and said unto him, blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood is not revealed it unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock, the rock is not Peter, the rock is the knowledge that Jesus is the Christ. The Messiah, the Savior. Upon this rock, that knowledge of who Jesus is, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We've talked about this before, but in case you weren't with us, gates are not a real good offensive weapon. 
So much of the church has the picture of the devil running after them, shooting fiery darts and doing all this other kind of stuff. But the picture that Jesus gave us was gates or a barrier holding out against some oppressing or pushing forward force. He said the gates of hell shall not prevail against you. Another translation says they won't be able to hold out against you. I like that. The gates of hell, the power of death, everything the devil has in his arsenal cannot hold out against you when you know who Jesus is. Well, that sounds like we're talking about the abundance of grace again. That sounds like we're talking about taking hold of something. And as we take hold of the gift of righteousness and the abundance of grace, the power of death, which Jesus destroyed, that power of death that began to reign through Adam's sin over all of mankind, that power of death, meaning any and everything, anything and everything the devil has got to throw against you, can't hold out. But holding out implies that it's not an instant result. Doesn't it? Otherwise, Jesus said, and the gates of hell shall fall down before you immediately. Now, we might wish that he had said that. But the fact is, he said that there would be a period or a a process of time that the devil will try to hold out, but he won't be successful. That period of time where he's trying to hold out is what we call tribulation. That's the hard place in life. That's the place where nobody wants to rejoice. Oh, everybody shout when the wall come down. Everybody will shout when the gates of hell fall. Oh, yes, glory to God. We knew it all the time. But it's while they're holding out that's tough. That's the fight of faith. The fight of faith is when the gates of hell are trying to hold out against you. And it may look like it's going to go. It may look like they're going to hold out. It may look like we're not going to be successful here. That's the fight of faith. Wouldn't it be great if there was no fight to faith? Wouldn't it be great if Jesus said, whatsoever you believe in your heart and say with your mouth shall instantly occur? Wow. Sounds good, but think about what a mess the world would be. That'd be all right on my end, but I don't know what you'd be saying. Now think about that. Think of how people would start saying things contrary to the will of God and just because they said it, because they believed in their heart, it would happen. The world would be in a mess. Jesus couldn't build a church that way. He couldn't build a church that way. You know why? Because it takes a certain level of maturity to fight successfully through the fight of faith. And every time you do, every time you're successful and the gates of hell don't hold out against you in some area, whether it's sickness uh, for you to receive your healing or poverty, your needs being met, whatever it is. Every time you come through, you're stronger. You're stronger in what you, in your knowledge of God's will. You're stronger in your knowledge of how the word works. You're stronger in your confidence in God keeping his word. You're stronger in faith. Upon this rock I shall build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto these, verse 19, the keys of, literally, to the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That sounds like authority to me. That sounds like reigning in life to me. So he connects reigning in life with the process of the devil trying to hold out against you. 
You know, one of the, um, I love Bible stories of the Old Testament. I'm not real good in the Old Testament, but they're the, the ones that I know and the ones I understand, I love the Old Testament stories. The Bible says that everything in the Old Testament is a type and a shadow to us. It's an example to us of something that belongs to us as believers in Jesus. But there's a story in the Old Testament that's always been the hardest for me to relate to. I love the story, and I admire the individual, but the, the but it's just hard for me to relate to, and that's the story of Joseph. You remember how Joseph was one of Jacob's 12 sons? And he had a dream. And in this dream, God exalted him. He exalted him even above his mother and his father. Now that, in Jewish culture, forget that. The mother and the father are always going to be on the top. You never take a position of authority over them or usurp their authority or position or anything like that. And Joseph, as a young boy, teenage boy, I'm not sure he did the smartest thing because he told his brothers all the stuff that he started dreaming. God gave me a dream and your stars bowed down to me. You were represented by stars and you came under me. And your, uh, you were represented my sheaves of wheat were out in the field and your sheaves of wheat bowed down before mine. Literally what he's saying is God's given me dreams and I'm on top of you. You're going to wind up serving me. I don't know anybody that, that would really be a blessing to. I think we need to be careful about the things God shows us or at least how, how we share those. Anyway, you remember the story how that Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery. Now, I see a lot of things about the story of Joseph. He went into slavery, went in, wound up being in bondage in the, uh, prison in Egypt, uh, and he was finally raised to be prime minister of Egypt. Great end of the story. But it's real easy to read over the story real quickly. Joseph spent about 12 years in prison. He was about 17, 18 years old when his brother sold him into slavery, and he was about 30 years old when he came out and was made prime minister of Egypt by the Pharaoh. Now, I can see a lot of things in Joseph's story that are a type of Jesus. Jesus was sold by his brethren into slavery, the bondage of spiritual death. That happened through the crucifixion. Jesus was raised and elevated through his resurrection to the right hand of the Father. I can see some similarities there where Joseph is concerned and where Jesus is concerned. But Joseph is not supposed to be a type of Jesus, even though there may be similarities. Joseph is a type of something that belongs to us or something that we are going to experience in life on our way to the place of authority or being seated with Jesus at the right hand of the Father, like the Bible says. Smith Booklesworth said something one time. I think it was him that said it. He said, adversities won't injure true faith. Well, is that true when the adversities are 12 years long? I mean, it's easy to say, I believe I received my healing in Jesus' name, and the doctor says tomorrow that things have gotten worse. Well, I'm not going to let that bother me because I believe the word to be true. But 12 years? What would you have done after 12 years? Because you can't find anything in the story. Uh, We know Joseph isn't perfect any more than any other human being could have been perfect. But you can't find anything in the story that Joseph ever did wrong. Never. He's doing right time after time after time. And people are mistreating him, doing him wrong on every hand. And he winds up being in prison. Every place that he is, God elevates him. But he's still in prison. And he never turns loose. 
of the original thing that God had shown him. Never forgets, never gives up, never changes who he is. Now, I'm, I'm going to make a statement. I'm going to um, adjust or adapt Wigglesworth's statement. Adversities never, change, never injure true faith. That's true. If you're believing according to the circumstance and the circumstance changes or the adversity increases, then that will injure something that's not real Bible-based faith. But I'm going to go a little bit further. Adversities won't change the character of someone who knows they are in Christ. And whenever adversities do change somebody, it's because they weren't established. They weren't standing firmly fixed in who they were in Christ to begin with. I, I don't believe trouble can change you. I believe trouble just shows up who you were or who we are. Somebody, I don't know who to credit this to, but somebody said people are like tea bags. you got to wait to get them in hot water to find out what's really in them. I think there's a lot of truth to that. Now, that doesn't mean who you are today is who you'll always have to be. Because you can change who you are based on what the Bible says about you. You can accept that to be true. But Joseph is a guy that never changes who he is. Now, you can't tell me, even though the Bible story doesn't doesn't reveal it, you can't tell me that Joseph didn't have some real heart-to-heart talks with God in the middle of the night. Lord, what is going on here? Okay, maybe I shouldn't have told my brothers about the dream. All right, I get that. But this? Seriously? I serve Potiphar right? I do the right thing and reject his wife's advances? And now I get thrown into the dungeon? Seriously? Is that part of your plan? Now you gotta realize Joseph didn't know what we know. He doesn't know anything about the devil. He doesn't know who's doing what to him. Which puts him in the same category as most Christians. They don't know who's doing what. And what are their prayers like? God, are you behind this? Are you doing this? If so, why are you doing this? But it never changes who he is. He winds up in the middle of the dungeon, and then he's elevated because of his character, because he keeps doing the right thing. He had every right, every opportunity, good reason, as a matter of fact, to throw his hands up and say, forget it, I'm never going to do anything. If this is my lot in life, forget it. But he doesn't. He shows himself as someone who is worthy of responsibility and worthy of favor. Even in prison. He becomes the ruler of the prison as a prisoner. Helps guys. Interprets two guys' dreams. Works out just the way that he said. And the guy that is elevated back to the king's palace forgets him. How do you forget the guy that told you you're coming back? But he forgot him for seven years. Another perfect opportunity for Joseph to throw up his hands and say, forget this. No way. You know what's interesting to me? One of the biggest or most often questions that are asked when it comes to faith, and especially where healing is concerned, is, Pastor Mike, how long do I have to keep confessing the word? And every time I want to say, well, just till you're ready to give up. (laughs) 
And, and without, and nobody's ever said this, but the implication is, I've said it for a week. Bless God, I'm not going to do it again. Okay. Enjoy your sickness. What's our option? What else are we going to do? We're going to do like so many other Christians, just say, well, I just don't understand why God's doing this to me. And all the time God's saying, I did something to get you out of this dummy. I'm not the cause of your trouble. You failing to act on the word is the cause of your trouble. Listen, I'm not sure how heaven works, but I am just about convinced that God's going to let me watch when all these people who say that when they get to heaven, they're going to ask the Lord why. I'm sure he's going to let me watch some of that. I've had to listen to too much of it here not to get the enjoyment (laughs) of hearing him answer. All these people that have got these questions for God. Joseph never changed. He never altered his position. He never altered who he was. He continued being the same person when he was up and when he was down. Well, I think there's some things to learn about Joseph. The excellence of character is one of the greatest things that we could emulate. But we would never know about Joseph's excellence of character without the trouble that he endured. How are you going to find out the excellence of your character without the trouble here in this life that the devil brings against us? No, I know what you're thinking. I've thought it too. Lord, I'm spiritually mature enough. I've been in the Word long enough. My patience is developed just through the study of the Word. You can't do that. That's like saying... I have built up my muscles by reading books on weightlifting. It doesn't work that way. Joseph never changed. Never changed. You talk about somebody that was established in righteousness and goodness. And, and what he knew, what did he know about God? His father is three generations down from Abraham. What do they know? There's Abraham, Isaac, Abraham who is his great-grandfather, Joseph's great-grandfather, Isaac who is his grandfather, and Jacob who is his father. What do any of these guys know? Jacob was a reprobate earlier in his life. Thief. What do they know about the things of God? What did Joseph know other than what God revealed to him in his heart? What did he know? He didn't have any law of Moses. He didn't have any any Psalms of David. He didn't have any of that kind of stuff. What did he know? Enough to keep him steady. And that was a whole lot less than you've got. He knew way less than you have. So we have no excuse not to hold steady, in my opinion. At least I don't. You judge it for yourself, but I certainly don't. I know way more than Joseph ever knew. We stub our toes spiritually and we think, I'm just ready to quit. (laughs) Turn with me over to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 
Here's a favorite scripture of so many Christians who want to make excuses for the things of God. This is the story of Paul's thorn in the flesh. I don't have time to teach on it this morning, so let me just hit the high spots. Paul said that he endured and overcame sickness and trouble and adversity and all kinds of different things that he lists as as the things that came against him. Paul's thorn in the flesh was a messenger of Satan. Him, personality. Sickness is not a personality. Paul's thorn in the flesh, very simply, was persecution. If you look at the book of Acts, there was only one city that Paul was not run out of. Only one. The first city would be enough for most people to give up and quit. But time after time after time, it talks about how the Jews stirred up trouble against Paul. In many cases, they beat him. And in many cases, they had him thrown in prison. In other cases, they st- one case at least, they stoned him and left him for dead. And God raised him up. So the thorn in the flesh is what Paul is praying about. This persecution is what he prayed about. Verse 8, it says, for this thing... Well, I guess I better back up. Verse 7, it says, And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of revelations that was given to me a thorn in the flesh. That's interesting to me that so many Christians say that God did this to him when God was the one that the Bible identifies as exalting him because of giving him the revelations. If God didn't want him to be exalted, couldn't he just stop the revelations? I mean, that would have seemed a whole lot easier than God stirring up all the trouble if he was behind it. Right? Unless I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of revelations that was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan, not the messenger of God, the messenger of Satan. So who's delivering a message through their action? Not God, the devil. What's the devil's message? Paul, you're going to have trouble if you keep this ministry stuff going. Would that be God trying to change something or the devil trying to be change, trying to change something? It's the devil trying to change something. So it was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan, to buffet me. The word buffet is a verb. It means the ill treatment of others. It's a verb that's used in beatings, concerning beatings and mob violence. Sickness doesn't do that to you, folks. It's just not the way sickness works. So there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan, to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure for this thing. Talking about persecution. I besought the Lord three times that it, most translations say he, Rotherham's translation and others say he, might depart from me. This messenger of Satan, the personality, is who he's talking about. He's trying to exercise authority over this evil spirit, this stirring up uh, trouble and persecution against him, mostly through the Jewish community. So he's saying, I want this thing to depart from me. He's trying to exercise authority over this evil spirit that's stirring up trouble against his ministry. For this thing I besought the Lord three times that he might depart from me. And the Lord said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Now, most people interpret that as God saying, no, I've got a plan. You just stay sick. Everything will work out. That's not what he says. He said, my grace is sufficient for you. Now, wait a minute. Stop right there. Didn't we just read in Romans chapter 5 and verse 17 from the same guy that wrote this about his own experience? Same guy. Paul wrote both letters. Didn't Paul say in Romans chapter 5 verse 17 that if anyone 
will take hold of and act on the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness, they'll reign in life. Isn't that what he said? Well, if that doesn't work in his life, why should we expect it to work in ours? That seems like a legitimate question to me. Wouldn't it to you? I mean, preaching's fine, but somewhere along the way, if it doesn't work, what are we doing? And here the Lord is saying, the answer, Paul, is in my grace. In other words, he's saying, there's an abundance of grace that you must not be taken hold of if you're not reigning in life in this situation. Jesus is not saying, put up with this. Because it's my will. He's saying the answer is in the grace of God that I've been revealing to you all along. Take hold of something. Otherwise, we're going to have to do away with Romans chapter 5. Because they can't both be in opposition to one another. If it's truth, it's got to be truth on both ends. Right? So if we take our position or our condition or our situation just like Paul did and said, wait a minute, there's an area in my life that I'm not reigning. Lord, I need help here. If Romans 5.17 is correct, that it's taking hold of the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness that enables you to reign in life, then the grace that Jesus tells him about has to be something for him to take hold of so that he can reign. I'm sorry, that's just the way it has to be. If language means anything, there cannot be any other explanation. So he says, my grace is sufficient for you. In other words, Paul, there's something for you to take hold of. You know what Jesus is saying? He's saying, quit trying to get me to do something about the devil for you. Paul is praying, God, do something about this problem. Jesus is saying, you have authority. You do something about it. Hello? Otherwise, what could the grace of God be concerning? Is the grace of God ever talked about with you just putting up with a problem because it's God's plan for you to be in in pain? No. The grace of God is always talked about something that God does for you to bring you into victory. Something for you to take hold of by faith. If he's asking God to do something, that's not taking hold of by faith. That's the same thing as the guy that came to Brother Hagin looking for God to do something for his healing where Brother Hagin turns him around and says, look back to the cross at what was done. That's how you receive. That's the same thing Jesus is doing here with Paul. Same exact thing. And you go to the end of the book of Acts, you'll find out that nobody was forbidding Paul from his ministry at the end of his ministry. In other words, he put something to work and the persecution stopped. So the Lord said, my grace is sufficient for thee. My strength is made perfect in weakness. In other words, as Jesus saying, you've got everything you need to overcome this. Just access it by faith. I wonder if that's how Paul figured out these things that he told the Romans. Is it possible that maybe he lived it in his own life before he preached it to others? I know that breaks the mold for modern day preachers, but... Is it possible? So what does Paul conclude? He says, most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities. The word infirmities does not mean sickness. It means weakness. 
Most gladly, therefore, will I glory in my weaknesses that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Now, what weakness has he been talking about? The persecution that the Jews have been stirring up against him or that the devil has been stirring up through the Jews against him. That's been a weakness of his. That's why he prayed about it three times to begin with. And every time the Lord told him, the answer is in my grace. You take authority over this thing. You do something about it. So what does Paul conclude? How does he make the alteration or the adjustment in his life? He says, now I know how to handle things. Now I will begin to glory in the trouble, the weaknesses, the things that the devil stirs up against me because when I am weak, when this weakness comes against me, then I am strong. How is he strong? He's strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. He goes further, he says, therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities. It sounds like Paul begins to learn some things in his own life, probably way before he begins to preach it to others. But then again, he may be just human as as you and I are. We always know the answer for somebody else, but living the answer in our own life becomes a different issue. Folks, if, if giving answers to people was the key to success in life, I got it made. I got the answer for you no matter what the problem is. The problem that I have is that me giving you the answers doesn't put it to work in my life. I'm responsible for that. So Paul changes his attitude. He changes his outlook on life. He says, therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions. None of those things mean sickness. He didn't say, I take pleasure in sickness. He said, I take pleasure in weakness, in reproaches, when I'm reproached, when people speak against me. I take pleasure in necessities, when when it looks like I'm not going to have enough, when my needs don't seem to be met. I take pleasure in persecutions. We all know what that is. I take pleasure in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I'm weak, then I'm a strong. In other ways, in other words, what he's saying is there is no way for the strength of God's word to be put in your life unless you come into these problems, these circumstances, these adversities, these hard places, so that you can activate the blessings of God by faith. In other words, he's saying you can't see the word work unless the word needs to work. Unless you've got a circumstance that requires God's help, you can't see God's help come to pass. So I've learned that these problems in life are just opportunities for my faith to work. That's what he's saying. Let me show you something else. Skip down with me another couple of verses. Verse 12. Paul said, truly the signs of an apostle were wrought among you in all patience, in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. Isn't it interesting that Paul would mention the signs of an apostle, first of all, having been done in all patience? Do you know what that indicates to me? That says to me that Paul didn't have all the signs and wonders and miracles as often as he might like them. Otherwise, why is he identifying patience with the signs of an apostle? So many times you'll have people say, and usually young Christians, but you'll have people say, now, Pastor Mike, if healing is right, shouldn't we always get instant results like Jesus did? Well, number one, Jesus didn't always get instant results. But number two is if there was always instant results, as we talked about earlier, if there was always instant results, what were, where would be the fight of faith? Where would be the standing in faith? Now, folks, Paul is not the only one that talks about this. He, he does talk about this. 
Notice with me over in Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, he concludes his letter to the church at Ephesus by saying in verse 10, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able, able, able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Whether you do or not, it's up to you. But the word equips you to do it. Your choice, not God's. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against uh, principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high or heavenly places. Wherefore, because this is true, because you're in a fight with the devil. Because, And what is the devil's fight? The devil's fight is to distract you from the word, to take you off of standing in the grace of God that will cause you to reign in life. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. Another translation, Williams translation says, when evil attacks you. And having done all to stand, stand therefore. Now, folks, if you've done all to stand and standing brings instant results, you're not going to have to stand therefore. The standing therefore is because it takes time. The standing, therefore, is the process where your patience is developed in the middle of a hard place. Yet in this case, as Paul is describing, the individual does everything necessary to overcome. But now there's going to be a time period before the gates of hell give out. There's going to be a time period, a process, before the devil's resistance falls down. And that's the point where we stand, therefore. You know as well as I do that whenever you reach out to take hold of something by faith, whether it's healing or whatever it is, you know as well as I do the devil tells you that you've done something wrong because you didn't get results as quick as you wanted to. Well, what do we do in those cases? That's the fight of faith, folks. The fight of faith is always between your ears. It's the devil saying, you didn't do what you needed to do. Something's missing. Something's wrong. Something's not working. So what do we do? We start scrambling around. Well, what's missing? What's wrong? What, what didn't we do? Those are a lot of the questions I get. And they all have to do with time. You know the difference between this, between this life, the earthly realm and eternity? Time. God's the same. You're the same. The word's the same. The only difference in heaven and earth, well, not the only difference, but a big difference between heaven and earth is time. We even equate eternal life to be longevity of time. That's not what it means. It means everlasting life. It means a quality of life. But we think in terms of time. We think eternity means length of time. Why? Because we are all conditioned to think when. And the devil will use that thought when to try to distract you and to put you off balance so he can knock you down. It's all about when. When, Pastor Mike, is the Lord going to heal me? He's not going to heal you. He already has. Well, when am I going to see my healing manifest? I can't stand that word. Because that's a religious sounding way for people to think God's still going to do something. It's a religious sounding term that people use and and preachers started it. But it's a religious sounding way for people to say it's not done yet. To nullify faith 
by saying it's not done yet. I can't stand the word manifest in relation to or relative to spiritual things. I can't stand it because it's either true now or it's not true now. If by manifest you mean when are we going to see it, that's not your problem. The Bible says God causing it to come to pass is his job. So so Paul's talking about a process. How did Paul figure this out? Did Jesus appear to him and say, now, Paul, here's how it works. Or did Jesus tell uh, tell you what he told us, and that is that we've been given authority, and when we exercise authority, things don't work right away, so we realize, you know, not working right away doesn't mean it's not working. I think Paul learned a lot of this on his own. That's how we learn. And after we do learn it, it's like, oh, well, that's what the Bible meant. Right? Anybody know it all up front? If so, you need to come teach. Because I certainly don't. Didn't and don't. What, did anybody else say anything like this, Pastor Mike? Yeah, as a matter of fact, they did. Turn with me over to James chapter 1. Verse 2, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. The word temptation means test, trials, and afflictions. What are we supposed to do? Count it all joy. Paul said rejoice. James said count it all joy. Now, I like how James says it because count it all joy means that it's not joy. You're going to have to treat it like it is. Folks, if you only worship God and, and rejoice in the things of God when you feel like rejoicing... There's not too many things that you're going to receive by faith. There's a lot of things by faith or a lot of things that Jesus purchased for you that are not going to be received. You're going to have to learn to rejoice because the Bible is true. Not because you feel good about it. My brethren counted all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. He didn't say if, he said when. You are going to fall in different temptations, test trials and troubles. You are going to fall into it. You better be prepared for when you do. What are we supposed to do? Count it all joy. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. That the trying of your faith worketh patience. Now, some people, bless their hearts, they've got the idea that only weak people in faith don't get instant results. If you're really strong in faith, you'll get results almost immediately. Well, poor old James and poor old Paul, they didn't seem to ever mature spiritually then, I guess. They never really grew in the things of God because that's not what they told us by the Holy Ghost. And and what a mistake the Holy Ghost made by giving both of these guys instructions to lead us in the wrong way. How stupid can you get? Knowing this, here's why you count it all joy. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith works with patience. That must be important, folks. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. Now, the only reason you're not going to count it all joy is if you don't know the importance of developing patience. Now, you know as well as I do that young people have the hardest time with patience. And a lot of times we can identify our own spiritual development by looking at our attitude toward patience. Man, kids, they want it right now. 
If Jesus was the way that most people are spiritually when it comes to patience, Jesus would be at the right hand of the Father nagging him constantly about, when am I going back? Are we there yet? Is it time? Because that's the way so many Christians do with the things of God. Well, when? 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 Oh, Lord, when? How long? Jesus, you know how long. Tell me. Do something. Please. Seriously? Is that the way it's supposed to be? Can you see Jesus doing that at the right hand of the Father, tugging on his sleeve? Am I going today? Can I go now? Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. The word wanting means to lack. To lack no thing. That means you get the answer to whatever you're believing for. Lacking nothing or wanting nothing, being in want for nothing, that's part of the New Testament promises. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Some Christians seem to think that says, the Lord is my shepherd, I'm full of wants. No, it says, I shall not want. That's a picture of the day we live in. David's not talking about his own experience. He's talking about looking forward to what we have in Christ. The abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness, in other words. Wanting nothing. Let patience have a perfect work that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Here's how you get the answers to your prayers. Hold steady in trouble and count it all joy in the middle of it. Another translation says of this, instead of that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing, it says that victory may be fully restored. That victory may be fully restored. I like that. Well, is James the only other one besides Paul that told us about this? No, turn with me another couple of pages to First Peter. Notice he says, uh, better start in verse 3. First Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season. In other words, you rejoice in the things that are ahead. But for now, if need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations. That the trial of your faith, being more precious than of gold, that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. That's a lot of King James English for saying this. It's saying, just as you rejoice in the things in heaven, even if you're in a hard place now, rejoice because your faith is being tested, purified, strengthened, and patience is being developed. Chapter 4. He goes even further and says... Verse 12. Beloved... Think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. Now, folks, stop there for just a minute and think about what he's saying. Do you think you're not going to be attacked of the devil? 
Some of the, some of the people that were the most greatly used of God were fighting battles on their own, in their own lives. Smith Wigglesworth was laying hands on the sick and raising the dead. And it took him three and a half years to pass the kidney stones that he had in his body. He would be in agony. He'd go back to his hotel or back to his room, wherever it was, you know, where he's having these meetings. And he'd be writhing in the floor in agony at night, in the middle of the night, believing God day after day after day after day for deliverance from these things. He'd go out in the meetings. Have signs and wonders and miracles. Why? Because he's anointed for signs and wonders and miracles. When it comes to his own healing, he's dependent on believing God based on the word just like you and I are. John Lake experienced wonderful, wonderful miracles of healings and different things like that. The authority of God operated through him in a magnificent way. Yet as sometimes his people and his family were starving to death. He said himself at the, toward the end of his life and his ministry, he said, I never did get an understanding of God meeting my needs. Well, why? In the abundance of grace, just as great where financial provision is concerned as it is where healing is concerned? Well, sure it is. You think you're not going to be attacked by the devil? You think the devil is just going to turn a blind eye while we just float through life, reigning and seeing our words come to pass? Seriously? Somebody said not too long ago, they said, Pastor Mike, how is it that you still lay hands on the sick when we can see your hand tremoring and shaking? Are you serious? I'm anointed to minister to the sick. I'm not anointed to believe God for my own healing. I get to do that based on the word just like you and I, just like everybody does. Yeah, but how can people believe to be healed if they see your hand shake? Well, if I was like some preachers, I'd tell them it was shaking because of the anointing. <laughs> Folks, I'm preaching healing and victory on TV in one of the, the biggest media markets in the country. You think the devil's not going to attack me? Seriously? Not a, I'm not enjoying a minute of it. Trust me. And I know how this works. The devil always tells you, here's what you're doing wrong, or here's how you're missing it, or everybody's going to see. And what do you do? Your inclination is to look around and see, well, am I doing anything wrong? Is there something I'm not doing according to the word? And once you make the check and identify that I have done everything that there is to do to stand, my job now is to stand. But Pastor Mike, if it's taking you this long, how long is it going to take me? I don't know. I have no idea. But I do know this. I know the Bible tells us not to build our experiences on somebody else's. Not to build our belief on somebody else's experience. I'm building my belief on the word. What's my option? Seriously. What is my option? Folks, am I going to deny the truth of the word of God where healing is concerned? I'm going to preach it to you, but I'm going to deny it in my own life. Seriously? I could no more deny the fact that the Bible says that Jesus took my infirmities and bore my sicknesses than I could deny who I am. Matter of fact, I'm more sure of what the Bible says than I am who I am. And that's the real issue, isn't it? 
When you get in the middle of a hard place, when you get in the middle of a test or a trial, I wish it was already done. I wish it had, hadn't, uh, hadn't taken place over a period of time. I wish that nobody had seen it. I, to be real honest with you, this is more an attack on my vanity than it is on my health. Because I can see people look at it, and I can't stand it. But let me tell you what's going to happen. There's going to come a day where people are going to look for it and won't be able to find it. And I say that because the word's true. I don't say that because of any revelation from God. Man, I wish I had a revelation from God on it. But I've got the word same as you. Well, but Pastor Mike, how long is it going to be? Had one person say, well, when you get your healing, I believe God for mine. Okay. Enjoy your life. That's what Peter's talking about. He said, don't think it's strange. Don't think it, look at it like it's some strange thing that has happened because you're in the middle of a trial. But rejoice. Verse 13, same thing. But rejoice. Here's the fourth witness we've got. Two from Paul, one from James, and now one from Peter. But rejoice. Inasmuch as you're a partaker of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, you shall also be glad with exceeding joy. If you be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are you, for the spirit of glory and God rests upon you. On their part is evil spoken of, but on your part is glorified. Now, obviously, he's talking about persecution here. But that's not the only trial. That's not the only, the, the only test. That's not the only place of the hardship that we endure. And if he told them something that only applies to persecution, but not something else, then that wouldn't be consistent with the things of God. Folks, you need to be expectant of the devil testing you. You need to look forward to it. Now, why? Well, let me give you a couple of scriptures to close. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 12. The Bible encourages, the Holy Ghost encourages us not to be slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Faith and patience inherits the promises. Now, as we've said before, if you get instant results, you don't need patience. Patience is only an issue when things seem to be delayed. Patience for a moment isn't patience. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 35 says, Cast not away your confidence, which has great recompense of reward. Now, that's what the devil's trying to do. That's everything about the trouble that you find yourself in in life. It's the devil trying to make you cast away your confidence, trying to make you give up on what the Bible says is true. That's what every bit of the trouble that comes against you in life is designed for, to make you give up on what the Bible says so that you become a victim to his circumstance and to his work. The Bible tells you not to do that. The Bible doesn't say God will keep you from casting away your confidence. It says it's your job and it's my job. Cast not away your confidence, which has great recompense or reward, for you have need of patience. Next verse. For you have need of patience, that after you've done the will of God, you might inherit the promise. So the promise, uh, the, the receiving of the promise comes after you've done the will of God. Well, how long after? Doesn't say. Just says after. It says after. I'm sure you've heard the story of uh, Winston Churchill 
that went to some place, I don't know, college, something like that, some graduation thing, I think it was. And everybody was expecting he had, he was in the middle of or toward the end of World War II and the great leaders of all time. And everybody's waiting for his speech and he comes up to the platform and says, never, ever, 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 ever give up. He goes and sits down. Now if he had spoken for an hour, nobody would remember what he said. If he had done what everybody was looking for him to do and give this great inspirational speech, I guarantee you nobody would remember his speech. But the one thing that he said was the one important thing for them to get, and that is don't ever give up. That's what patience is about. Patience says God's word is true, so I refuse to give up. But how do you rejoice in the middle of trouble like that, Pastor Mike? You rejoice because God's word is true. And because his word is true, it's not dependent on me. Folks, my healing is not dependent on my strength of faith. My healing is dependent on the truth of God's word. That's why I can say with confidence, healing is mine. That's why no matter what the devil does, or no, no, even if I mess up, if I mess up, the Holy Ghost will show me and get me back on track. Because God's word is true. Same thing for you. In every area, not just where his sickness and healing is concerned, but where provision is concerned, where everything that Jesus purchased for us is concerned. God's word is true. I refuse to deny it. I don't care what you see. And if somebody wants to judge things based on what they say, that's okay with me. I don't care. Well, I care. I care how it looks, looks on me, toward me. But I don't care what somebody else chooses to do. I refuse to deny the word. Absolutely refuse. Folks, if I die, put on my tombstone, he never gave up. I refuse to deny the word. And whether you know it or not, that is being strong in the Lord. I don't feel strong when I say it. But I know God's word is true. And I rejoice in the opportunity. You know, I prayed about this. I can't say that the Lord told me this, but um, but here's what I think I got, and you judge it for yourself. I prayed about this thing. It's it's been uh, well, it's been a little over a year now since uh, since I first noticed it. I prayed about this off and on, and and several months back, I said, Lord, this isn't right. If I was praying for anybody else in the church, they'd get it. Well, I'm part of the church too, aren't I? I mean, this church needs me. I need to do something about this. And, and just, uh, I didn't hear words, but just on the inside, I, I know. I know. You know how this thing is going to go? It's going to go so that everybody sees the process of standing in faith so that when it occurs, people can recognize, well, that's how you do it. This is not a matter of God's timing. This is not a matter of, well, if I would just do one thing that I haven't yet done, then that'll work. This is just simply a matter of the gates of hell trying to hold out against the word of God. That's all it is. That's all it is. Now, I despise it, but I rejoice in it. Because God's word is true. Do you realize that for this not to work, 
I've got almost 30 years of preaching the word that I'm going to have to go back to everybody I preach to and say, I didn't tell you the truth. And don't you think that I wouldn't do it too? God's word is true. It's true. It'll work for you even if it looks like it's not working. Hold fast to the word. That's what it means. That's why the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23, hold fast the profession of your faith without wavering for he is faithful that promised. The word has to work. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying this, the knowledge of who I am, the knowledge of the word of God made flesh. That's the knowledge that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's the knowledge that I'll build my church on. And the gates of hell can't hold out against that. Folks, never, ever, ever, ever give up. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's true. Heaven and earth will pass away, but your word will never fail. Father, I thank you for those that are here believing for things. I thank you that the word that they're standing on is sufficient to bring them the answer, whether it's healing, whether it's provision, no matter what it is, whether it's family situations, Father, I thank you that your word can never fail. Therefore, we we rejoice, not because we enjoy the problem. We don't. But we rejoice because your word is true. We rejoice for the opportunity for your word to become a reality, your promises to become a reality in our lives. We rejoice that all shall see. Here's how the word works. Maybe not instantly. Maybe not overnight. It may seem to be delayed, but it's true nonetheless. So we stand strong upon you, Father. Stand strong upon your word. We choose to stand and be firmly fixed. We'll never give up, Father. We'll never, ever give up. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. You're not less of a king because things haven't worked out yet. Don't ever forget that. Just because there may be a rebellion in your kingdom, you're still king and you're still reigning. Amen? Amen. God bless you. Have a great day. Come on back and be with us tonight if you can. You're dismissed.